When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like jam, hammers and giraffes. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very long-necked podcast, that one. Or prunes, runes and spoons, harpoons, (laughs) cartoons and pontoons. Oh, I love the idea of all of those. Maybe a cartoon of a harpoon on a rune. (laughs) (laughs) However, that is to monstrously digress as ever, because what we will be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of applause, which is one of my favourite recent episodes during Covid, is in fact all about popularity in ancient Rome. It's about Stalinist Russia. It's about babies. It's about opera-going sophisticates, crowds and paying people to clap or even Boo. It's about Henry James's failure as a playwright. And of course, it's all about gratitude to the NHS and frontline medical staff across the globe during the COVID-19 crisis. That was a long-winded one there. However, did you also know that the history of snakes is in fact about (laughs) fear and phobia, mythology, Viking sea serpents. It's also about dreams and the US Civil War. It's about the Hopi snake dance. It's about weaponizing venom for military uses, and also about antivenom. Who knew, Sam? (laughs) The history of snakes was really tremendously good fun. I enjoyed that massively. Uh, You're probably wondering who's doing all the talking. Let me say that the man uh, who is on the other microphone, if history was a puddle, a puddle of unknown depth, full of water, of unknown chemicals and disease, a puddle perhaps outside Chernobyl in the late 1980s, or a puddle outside a plague house in 17th century London. This man, ladies and gentlemen, he would still put on his waders and his PPE to fathom its depths. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. <laughs> Hello, Sam. I'm getting a clue as to where you're going with puddles. <laughs> It's all about, I imagine it's all about contamination. Um, Now, the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing still in these grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say if he were a puddle related historian, he'd only be Sir Walter Rawley himself of the historical world. A true Renaissance man, an explorer, a poet, a historian, a puddle coverer. It's only the famous historical adventurer himself. Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. I've never been called a puddle coverer before. I like it. No, I'm not sure. I think it's a neologism that I've just discovered, Sam. I, 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 think I want if... it on my tombstone. Yes, puddle coverer. <laughs> 1977 to whenever. <laughs> uh, we are doing puddles, uh, the history of puddles, believe it or not. James, one of your ideas, methinks. 
I don't think it was. I think Ooh, I think you decided it, you wanted to do puddles. <laughs> mine. However, I'm, I'm a big fan of puddles. Um, yep. uh, it takes me back to when I was a, a young father, uh, splashing around in puddles with my two daughters, uh, who would like nothing more on a wet day to go down the road where there would be a big, there's a big sort of camber in the road and a great big sort of puddle would form and they would just jump into into puddles. Hmm. Um, so I think that's extraordinary. I also, oh. I, I like puddles and puddles and cars. You know, people wandering along the road and getting splashed. I was once with a with a with a friend who was about to go to an interview, and she was dressed up really nicely. Uh, and a puddle came along. Uh, a puddle was right by her, and a car came along and covered her entirely immediately before the interview. Terrible. Very good. So, uh, memories of significant puddles in your own history, I think, exactly. is what we can start off with there. But, of course, all sorts of other ways of thinking about puddles and doing puddles. Um, what what really came to mind thinking about how we might, might approach this? Well, for me, uh, well, I was thinking about road camber and design, you know, so... Mm-hmm. You know, yes. puddles, puddles and roads. I was thinking about children's literature and puddles, the metaphor of, of the puddle. I, I was reading uh, the wonderful Shirley Hughes, who's a, a ch- really famous children's author and illustrator. And one of my favourite series uh, of hers is a little series on a character called Alfie and Dogger. Uh, and she has this wonderful poem called Duckweather. Um, which got me really thinking about sort of about you know, historical children and thinking about 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 puddles and and the imagination. And I'm just going to read a little bit for you. Duck weather, splishing, splashing in the rain, up the street and back again, stomping, stamping through the flood. We don't mind a bit of mud, running pavements, gutters flowing, all the cars with wipers going. We don't care about the weather. Tramping hand in hand together, we don't mind a damp, wet day, sloshing puddles all the way, splishing, splashing in the rain, up the street and back again. And I think what it, what it, that really evokes the kind of excitement and innocence and playfulness of puddles for children, and the way in which we can reconstruct that, the history of that sort of experience in the past, I think is 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 really fascinating. But I'm not going to talk about that at all. I'm going to talk about two <laughs> different things. I'm going to talk about Walter Rawley, uh, and it's yep. pronounced Rawley, uh, and the the myth of him laying down his cloak for Elizabeth I um, in his puddle. And then I'm going to talk about, I'm going to go back to nursery rhymes, and oh. I'm going to talk about the historical derivation of nursery rhymes inspired by Dr. Foster. Who went I like to this Gloucester. idea. I, I, yeah, he did go to Gloucester. I like the idea of, um, say, you know, kids and puddles and whether the experience of playing in a puddle is something that is actually shared completely across time. Can we say that we get as much and the same sort of joy of jumping in a puddle as someone did in 1523? Or is the whole puddle splashing experience too, you know, too mixed up with the culture and the experiences of the time to say that we actually did feel the same, we can feel the same type of joy and silliness as they did back those many centuries ago. I think at the heart of that is a sort of, is a, is a question about childhood and upbringing. And I suppose it's whether across historical time periods, you're thinking about would children have had the freedom and innocence and time to actually go and indulge in jumping in puddles how much freedom do they do they have you know are there sort of more straight straight laced 
you know, cultures or societies where actually for a child to go out and get muddy and, and covered in water would actually be really, really frowned upon and would actually, you know, they'd suffer a beating for it. Mm. Um, we've just been reading um, uh, Goodnight, Mr. Tom, and the poor boy there um, is just... Um, is sort of so downtrodden and beaten by his by his um, uber religious mother um, that you you get a sense that there isn't a sort of sense of childhood freedom and innocence there. And so, actually, going back and trying to reconstruct that, I think, would be fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Well, we we talking of, of innocence and freedom. We we hired a hot tub <laughs> in the Willis household last week, so that was our a large experience. Of, <laughs> and, uh, well, it was a large puddle. There was a properly big puddle when I took the plug out in my garden, and it didn't drain away. And I realised I, I, I hadn't really thought it through very well. Um, and uh, it, that was what made me think about puddle removal. How do you get rid of unwanted water? How did you get rid of a puddle? I mean, talking about camber on roads, we might talk a little bit about that yeah, later yeah. in ro- Roman road engineering. But the first thing that struck me about puddle removal was the uh, obvious link to mining, James. Um, we, you know, we both live in the southwest. We wrote a chapter on the history of chimneys in our book. I'd urge you to read that or to listen to the podcast on the history of chimneys, because what I wanted to talk about was was very much inspired by that. Now, part of our history of chimneys was all to do with the um, the Cornwall and West Devon mining landscape. Um, James, you used to have holidays in Cornwall, didn't you? I still do. I love, love Cornwall. It's one of my favourite places to go. And, and as you travel over uh, the Tamar and you go down into Cornwall and you drive uh, through the landscape, it is dotted by these incredible <laughs> chimneys, these sort of archaeological sort of um, remains and memories of, a, of an industry, you know, na- now gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah fascinating. Well, I mean, it is fascinating. And I love the way that these brick chimneys still stand up and they really demand answers you, you know you can't go past or drive past them without wondering even slightly what it's there for and um that makes a little historian out of everyone in a car driving down it's, you know that that sense of curiosity is what drives us all but the point is is that the Cornwall and West Devon mining landscape is actually now a world heritage site so it's it's the same as Stonehenge Canterbury Cathedral Blenheim Palace and the Taj Mahal and the Acropolis and Machu Picchu it's very important um and what's going on here is that from 1800, mines in West Devon and Cornwall begin to operate a new generation of high-pressure steam engines. And what these new steam engines can do, um, you bear in mind, we're talking 1800. It really, really is early on, the very, the very kind of boundaries of the Industrial Revolution. But they start making new steam engines which produce pressure at 40 or 50 pounds per square inch. That is roughly 10 times what had gone before. And it allows the miners to do something really, really important, which is why I'm talking about it today. It allows them to pump out the water that has gathered at the bottom of the mine. The farther down you go, um, the more likelihood is you, you are going to... Uh, you're going to encounter water that needs to be removed for you be able to be able to to mine the tin uh, and all of the, uh, the 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 copper or whatever else it might be um and out out of the mines and so these steam engines are crucial to to do that to be able to remove puddles from mines so i wanted to talk a little bit about that 
I mean, at the height of the Cornish tin mining industry, you've got around 600 steam engines all working at the same time, pumping out the mines. And uh, one of the key men here is the Cornish engineer, a guy called Richard Trevithick. And he is the one who introduced higher steam pressures to the steam engines. And he's doing this, you know, early years of the 1800s, around about 1802. And he can produce pressures of around 145 pounds per square inch. And it fundamentally changed everything. And his first experiment was actually with an engine at Coldbrookdale, um, but then it was applied to, to mines in Cornwall. It, what he really wanted to do first was to make a vehicle, and he, he created the first successful-ish, successful-ish, I'll describe it as that, steam locomotive for the Pennydarren tram road in South Wales. But it, it wasn't brilliant. The engine worked, but it broke um, the cast iron track of the tramway. So steam engines and trains in relation to railways needed a bit more development. But the stationary steam engine worked. That was absolutely um, what the miners wanted. And so they developed this this new invention of high-pressure steam. And it leads to the development of large beam-pumping engines, they're called. And they have complex sequences of valve actions. They're, they're, they're unique. They're different to anything that's gone before. And they're known as Cornish engines um, had a very distinctive characteristic and that's is the, the fact that the 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 steam injection is cut off before the stroke of the engine is complete and that allows the steam to do its work by expanding and that's something that is so crucial to the to the whole development of the industrial revolution and these cornish engines they were used all over the world for heavy pumping duties and they were often shipped out and installed by cornish engineers um here's a little description of how it works james if you can understand it the main characteristic of a Cornish engine is that by pump is that the pumping is done by a falling weight which is lifted by the engine. This weight is positioned above the pump, which is linked to a beam with the piston attached to the opposite end of this beam. The weight is lifted by a combination of steam pressure above and vacuum below the piston. During the pumping stroke, as the weight falls, the piston returns to the top of the cylinder because an equilibrium valve opens to allow steam to pass from above to below the piston. The speed of movement varies during the cycle, making a Cornish engine both exciting to watch and to drive. Um, I'm not sure I'm any wiser after that description, but all we need to know about this is that it's it's new, it's unique, it allows them to dry out the mines and it fundamentally changes everything. I think another point just to finish with is that Trevithick's one of these fascinating people. He's a brilliant inventor, but he's a useless businessman. He hooks up with untrustworthy people. He thinks he's going to make an absolute fortune several times in his life. He ends up uh, filing for bankruptcy. Um, it's a very sad tale, actually. Um, yeah, several of his uh, engines are actually ordered for the Peruvian silver mines and he dreams of unlimited mineral wealth in the Andes. He goes to South America in 1816, but then he returns decade later. He's got no money at all and he finds that in his absence, other engineers, notably George Stevenson, have profited from his own invention. He dies in poverty and is buried in an unmarked grave. So, you know, there's a this little uh, sub-history of puddle removal, if I could call it that, James, is actually, it's a bit of a sad one. It's the tale of this poor guy, Mr Trevithick. It sounds very sad indeed, Sam. I'm going to stick with the West Country, uh, mm. and I'm going to talk about, as I promised, about Sir Walter Rawley. Uh, many of us sort of think his name is, is Raleigh, uh, pronounced, spelt like the bicycle uh, brand, but uh, in fact, he, he spelt his name in all sorts of different ways, but it's often spelt... 
in his manuscript letters R A W L E Y, so it's pronounced rawly, and 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 I think I think the standard spelling nowadays uh, is R A L E. G H, but anyway, Walter Raleigh is somebody who's sort of gone down in 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 Elizabethan history, Jacobean history, as a sort of you know famous explorer and adventurer. Um, he's an English landed gentleman uh, from the West Country. He's a writer. He's a soldier. He's a politician. He's a courtier. He's a spy. He's an explorer. If you if you look at the Dictionary of National Biography. Um, article on him he's all sorts of things so he's he's a he's a soldier in ireland he's a favorite of the queen he's a colonist so he goes out to the to the new world he's associated with potatoes and tobacco he's a propagandist he spectacularly falls out with the queen by marrying one of her um maids of honor um and it falls into into disfavor uh, and is imprisoned for that. He's a, a courtier poet. Uh, he's an atheist. He's an explorer. He's a rival. Uh, he's a suspect. He's a traitor. He's a prisoner. He's a tower scholar. Uh, and he is uh, somebody who, again, who who voyages around the world, goes off to Guyana, gets into trouble, um, comes back, uh, is put on trial uh, and is executed. So he's a really interesting sort of maverick, sort of polymath character. And one of the most famous myths about him is this idea that when he met the Queen uh, on one occasion in the 15, early 1580s, he was supposed to have laid down his cloak for her in an act of gallantry as she was walking over a puddle. Now, this has gone down in, in history. It's even in, and this is where I came across it first, yeah, and you probably probably remember this picture. Any of you remember the Ladybird history of Walter Raleigh? And um, it has him on the front sort of dressed up in all his finery, um, and Elizabeth I dressed in all her finery and him putting his cape over this puddle. Now, this is complete myth. I mean, it may have happened, but 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 in all probability it didn't. And it's actually quite interesting. If you go back, follow the sources back, there is no contemporary evidence that it happened. In other words, there is no there's no document that survives, that actually says this is what actually happened. And this is re really problematic. The first recorded mention of it is in 1662 in a published work, which comes sort of, you know, some 80 years or so after the supposed event. And it's published in Thomas Fuller's History of the Worthies of England. Now, this is the kind of volume that would be assembled from all sorts of information, you know, manuscript information, but also from oral report. So it may be that it that it um that it got into there from that. Um, the extract I will read to you. This Captain Raleigh coming out of Ireland to the English court in good habit, his clothes being then a considerable part of his estate, found the Queen walking till meeting with a plashy place she seemed to scruple going thereon. Presently, Raleigh cast and spread his new plush cloak on the ground, whereon the Queen trod gently, rewarding him afterwards with many suits for his so free and seasonable tender of so fair a footcloth. Now, it doesn't stop there, because the story then gets picked up by Sir Walter Scott, 
nineteenth century sort of writer, um, and in it, it appears in his Elizabethan romance Kenilworth, which was printed in eighteen twenty one, and. I'll read you the little extract from there because it's entirely yeah, entirely fictional, this. Accordingly, she fixed her keen glance on the youth as she approached the place where he stood with a look in which surprise at his boldness seemed to be unmingled with resentment while a trifling accident happened which attracted her attention towards him yet more strongly. The night had been rainy, and just where the young gentleman stood, a small quantity of mud interrupted the Queen's passage. As she hesitated to pass on, the gallant, this is Rawley, throwing his cloak from his shoulders, laid it on the miry spot so as to ensure her stepping over it dry-shod. Elizabeth looked at the young man who accompanied this act of devoted courtesy with a profound reverence and a blush that overspread his whole countenance. The Queen was confused and blushed in her turn, nodded her head, hastily passed on, and embarked in her barge without saying a word. So it's sort of, it's gone into the realm of fiction, and then gets picked up in all sorts of, you know, fictional places thereafter. And also, as I said, appears on the cover of the Ladybird book of Sir Walter Raleigh. Now, the problem is that we don't know whether there is any truth to this at all. However, this has not stopped certain scholars to suggest that actually that the, 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 the puddle was not in fact a puddle. It was in fact a metaphor for the Atlantic Ocean. And it was in fact to do with... Walter Raleigh's expedition across to the New World, and that actually, if this was a sort of, you know, if this was an act, it was actually an act of overt political theatre to advertise the kinds of things that he has been involved in. Now, Walter Raleigh, as I've said, has has a really sort of sad demise, rather like your 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 story from before, Sam. Terrific. Um, as a real sort of you know fall from power and and he gets imprisoned um under queen elizabeth because he's married uh, without her permission and it, that's a really interesting sort of period in his life because what he does is he doesn't really think the queen is that cross with him and he sends her these sort of these these very sort of um sad wretched letters um describing himself as do with me now what you list i am more weary of life than they are desirous i should pun perish um which if i had if it had been for her as it is by her i had been to be happily born and he sends all these sort of begging letters and the queen basically thinks you know basically you're sending me this insincere nonsense and and imprisons him um, he later get, gets out, but then falls out with um, with with James uh, over Guiana. Partly because what happens there is they they come into conflict with uh, with Spanish forces, which goes against the the treaty peace treaty between between the two countries. He arrives home and is promptly put on on trial. There's an outraged Spanish ambassador count gondomar who basically demands raleigh's head um so he's executed and then what's fascinating 
is uh, is what happens to his head. Uh, his head uh, eventually uh, is is um, embalmed and presented to his wife, uh, who receives it in a bag. It has a very sort of interesting history after that. So there we are, Sam. We're talking mm. about historical myth puddles and uh, and heads. I like the idea of it being this kind of political piece of theatre. Um, yes. And even if that's also nonsense, it's quite a clever explanation. And that's, mm. I think, what historians are here to do. Yes, but it'd be clever, <laughs> clever, clever nonsense. Clever, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, clever I've fun. always, I've, I shall have that on my gravestone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> professor of clever nonsense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's really good. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about was also about puddle removal. Having been inspired by the puddle removal in the mines, I wanted to talk about about the puddle removal underneath the Taj Mahal, mm. um, which is something I've come across recently. I had to do one of these talking head uh, film interviews um, talking about ancient engineering. And uh, I've talked about Gothic cathedrals and wall building and all sorts of things. Uh, and I ended up doing one on Islamic architecture and particularly on the Taj Mahal. And it's fascinating, the Taj Mahal. I've always been um, uh, fascinated by it. It's such a wonderful thing. It was built by Shah Jahan. He's the Mughal emperor. Um, and we're talking, it's your period, James, you know, late late 1500s, early 1600s. And um, his, his, one of his wives, Mumtaz Mahal, who he, he adores more than any others, she dies uh, giving birth to one of his many, many hundreds of children um, and uh, decides that he, well, she, she gets him to promise her that he's going to build her the best mausoleum that's ever been created. <laughs> and he, he certainly does it because he builds the Taj Mahal. Um, it's entirely built out of white marble, uh, which is uh, fairly staggering. And then inside it, the walls are decorated with precious and semi-precious stones from absolutely everywhere. We've got turquoise from Tibet, crystal and jade from China, sapphire from Sri Lanka, carnelian from Arabia, um, and you've also got uh, 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 construction workers, masons, stonecutters, inlayers, carvers, painters, calligraphers, dome builders and other artisans. They're coming across the entire of the Mughal Empire, but also from Central Asia and Iran to build it. And what's fascinating about the Taj Mahal particularly um, is what's going on underneath. It is very much like an iceberg. So you've got all this wonderful white marble on top um, and it, it's such a fabulous material to build out of because it reflects the sky, which means that the way that it appears constantly changes um, according to the time of day, according to the weather. Um, and that's what makes it all really, really very magical indeed. Um, it's also like a uh, iceberg in, in that you're looking at this um, huge white edifice, but it can't exist without everything that goes on underneath it. Um, now, all huge buildings, of course, have major foundations, but the Taj Mahal particularly is is important because it's built on the banks of a river, on silty, sandy ground, on the banks of the river Yamuna. Um, the, 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 the Taj Mahal is in Agra, it's in, in northern India, just to let you know that, and the, the Yamuna River. Um, and the way they did this was to use something called well foundations, which uh, were invented by the Romans. And a well foundation is you you dig down in a sort of silty, sandy area and then you you make a, a, a tubular pit, essentially like a pile, um, and you line it with with timber. So the we know that the Taj Mahal pits, these well foundations are lined with ebony because they've got this wonderful hardwood in the in the forests nearby in India. 
Incidentally, that's what they uh, made ships out of, the hardwoods from India, which is why they were so good and they didn't rot. Same principle here. You're lining the foundations of a well with hardwood that doesn't rot. However, to maintain its strength, once you've lined this pit, you then fill it with rubble and stones. And that is what creates essentially a pile, a stilt, upon which everything else stands. It's all joined together by arches. But for the the timber to maintain its integrity and its strength, it must not ever dry out. And so the principle here is that you've got the Yamuna River, which is going to water the foundations of the Taj Mahal. The big problem being that now, the since, since the, uh, the city of Agra has grown up and expanded, it's one of the most polluted cities in the world, let alone in, uh, in India, you've got dams and there are barrages, they're built uh, much further upstream, but that's hugely reduced the river flow going through the city of Agra. And so by messing with the river, um, they have threatened the existence of the Taj Mahal. The foundations are no longer watered. There are no longer puddles where they need them to be puddles, James. That's the point. You build these well foundations, but the bottom of the foundation has to exist in a permanent puddle. And if it's not watered, it's not wet all year round, the, the wood cracks and the Taj Mahal will collapse under its own weight. That's a serious problem. It's likely to happen. It's not just one of these kind of threats. It's actually possible that this is going to happen. The building above is already cracking. And it's all to do with the fact that where there once was a puddle, there now no longer is. Yeah, we need to put the puddle back, do we? We need to repuddle, James. Yes. Repuddle the Taj Mahal. <laughs> repuddle the Taj Mahal. Very good. Right. Excellent. For my last example, I want to take us to the world of nursery rhymes um, and in particular to the very famous one, Dr. Foster, who stepped in a puddle right up to his middle. But it's more than that. It's also I want to talk also about the historical basis of nursery rhymes. And in recent weeks, I managed to get my hands on a copy of the Oxford Book of Nursery Rhymes, edited by our wonderful friends, the OPs. You know, those scholars who've collected all sorts of historical information about, about childhood, historic childhood. And I've in fact bought three more of their books, one on children's games in the street and playground, and another collection called The Singing Game. So I've now, I'm now armed with a whole uh, quiver of these to dazzle you with uh, across the podcasts. Um, however, this is to this is to sort of digress. But if you don't own a copy of this Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes, uh, why don't you rush out now and buy one? It is a cornucopia of historical tidbits. Anyway, we digress. I shall start with reading uh, the verse since it connects us directly to puddles, which is very important. Doctor Foster went to Gloucester. In a shower of rain, he stepped in a puddle right up to his middle and never went there again. Now, this is a very famous nursery rhyme. I remember it from my own childhood. Uh, it's probably familiar with most of you, at least in the English language. Um, it's in, uh, a nursery rhyme that's appeared in many anthologies, uh, a verse and, and nursery rhymes since the 19th century. In fact, it also has its own ID number, would you believe? Would you believe it has a what is known as a Roud Folk Song Index number? It is, in fact, number 19288, Dr Foster. Now, although it's very well known today, it actually hasn't been round for that long, at least in printed form. And the origin of the rhyme 
Dr. Foster can be traced back to the uh, early 19th century. And we see it in this form, uh, published for the first time in 1844. Um, however, you'll note, if we go back and read it, he stepped in a puddle right up to his middle. That actually doesn't rhyme. And scholars think that actually the puddle should actually be pronounced piddle. And it's actually an archaic term for stream, which actually suggests that the text might be much earlier indeed. So it might have medieval origins. And although this is first published in the early 19th century, the origins of it, it's been argued, may in fact date back more than 700 years to the time of King Edward I. Now, this is a, uh, you know, a, a, an extraordinary king. You know, he had all sorts of nicknames. He was supposed to be very tall. He was known as Longshanks. He's a learned man, a very clever man. Uh, hence, uh, scholars argue that it might be that he earned the title Doctor Foster because he's he, he because he's so so learned, so well educated. Um, however, the the origins of Foster we don't really know. You know what that has to do with, and certain sort of uh, antiquarians have sort of tried to dig around in in local archives, sort of working out who the particular Fosters are in in Gloucester. But none of that is particularly convincing. However, the story goes that basically the king arrived in in Gloucester, which is a strategic town at a major crossing uh, on the River Severn uh, into Wales. He arrived in a storm and mistaking a, a small puddle for a deep ditch, he steered his horse around it and then the king and the horse uh, become trapped in this uh, in this water and need to be hauled out. And so cross is he, uh, so embarrassed was he and so humiliated by it, he vowed that he would never come back to Gloucester. Now that there, that, I mean, I, the, I mean, they're, they're deeply problematic. We're dealing with all sorts of things that are unstable and unknown. There is also an earlier version of this, which in fact connects it to Archbishop Lord, Archbishop of Canterbury during the 17th century, who got into all sorts of trouble. Uh, and the, this earlier recorded version dates back to 1810, and it is. Old Dr. Foster went to Gloucester to preach the work of God. When he came there, he sat in his chair and gave all the people a nod. And there's some very erudite uh, work connecting this to, you know, the church in Gloucester. And uh, because this was where Lord was, William Lord was. He was dean of Gloucester in 1616. He decided to remove a communion table in the cathedral from the middle of the choir to the east end and it did all sorts of things like that that you know that caused all sorts of all sorts of trouble now the main point that i'm trying to make here and it's sort of connected to puddles only in the sense that it's about dr foster is that actually so many of the nursery rhymes with which we are familiar have their origin in historical myths and historical facts and i've got a few more to test you with sam Okay, you may well know these. Uh, the first off is Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, what is Humpty Dumpty here? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Without googling it, no, I'm not going to not going to search. What is Humpty Dumpty here? Um, Humpty Dumpty is a section of an army. Oh, very clever! Uh, Humpty Dumpty is in fact a cannon, it's a massive ah. siege cannon uh, yeah. that royalist forces used uh, during the the Civil War, uh, and it's supposed to be connected to the siege of. The city of Colchester in 1648. The Royalists had this big sort of cannon, Humpty Dumpty. They put it at the top of the church tower, uh, and for you know a period of time, it blasted away, attacking parliamentary troops uh, who were defending the town. And eventually, the 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 the, the church tower was blown up. And so it was no, it was no longer any use. So Humpty Dumpty, you know, fell down and couldn't be put together again. Now I have another one for you, uh, Jack and uh, no, 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 not Jack and Jill, Barbar Black Sheep, Barbar right. Black Sheep. Have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. Who or what is Barbar Black Sheep? Is that the question? <laughs> it's about what is the, what's the historical context of this? Uh, well, um, <laughs> so, something to do with with woolen traders in oh. Ipswich in the early medieval period. Oh, ho, ho, ho. very close. It's our old friend Edward I again, Edward Longshanks, oh, yes. uh, who comes back from the Crusades in 1272. And it's all about the wool trade. And it's about the new taxes on the wool trade in order to fund his his um, his military adventures. So there we are. Uh, do you want one final one? Yes, please. Excellent. Excellent. OK, uh, you can either have Georgie Porgy um, or you can have... Um, or you can have Jack and Jill. Ooh, uh, Georgie Porgy. Georgie Porgy. Okay, well, I will give you a, I will give you a rendition of this. Georgie Porgy, pudding and pie, kissed the girls and made them cry. When the boys came out to play, Georgie Porgy ran away. Now, it is thought that Georgie Porgy was the Prince Regent, so the, the guy who later becomes George, George the Fourth, um, who. It weighed apparently more than 17 and a half stone, had a waist of a whopping uh, 50 inches uh, and was a sort of figure of total and utter ridicule here. So that's the um, that's the, the, the sort of context there, Sam. So there we are. That's that's me. Uh, sort of puddle related, uh, yeah, Dr. Very Foster, good. but really yeah, yeah. about the historical connection to in nursery rhymes wonderful i i really really enjoyed that and we should just briefly say that uh, we never talked about it but puddles and roman roads the key thing to know about roman roads uh, is that there aren't any puddles because they're cunningly designed so that all the water drains off and that was one of the key differences between a roman road and all of the the nonsense paths that went beforehand i think that's probably a fair Ooh, way to and, say it and you know what sam people should also listen to our homeschooling episode on turnpikes Oh yes, turnpikes had a lot of puddles in them as well. Dressing yeah. up, that's what did yes, we want to dressing dress up. up. Turnpike riots, the Rebecca riots, that was the yes, the Rebecca riots, and and yeah, so yeah. there are lots of description there about people travelling down these sort of untarmacked, you know, roads, unmade roads, and of course when you when you don't have that sort of the camber that you that develops much later, puddles and and sort of you know pools of mud sort of uh, cropping up all over roads and travellers find it very difficult. So puddles are, in fact, all about roads as well. Goodness <laughs> the transport me. revolution. Well, that's it for now. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. 
And I'm at James Daybell, and the podcast is at Unexpected Pod, and we are also all over social media. You can befriend us on Facebook, you can check us out on Instagram. We also have a brilliant website, uh, we would say that, uh, but we've taken a lot of care and attention with a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see all of our podcasts, our live shows, and our books as well. Yeah, well, thanks for listening, guys. We're back soon. Cheerio. Bye, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.